Not only should Walters be your spot before and after every Nats game, but also Walters is an avenue for cheaper Nats tickets. When buying tickets to Nationals Park through the rest of the season, enter promo code WALTERS for 30% off. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jones the batter, first pitch. Swing a high drive, deep center field. Back goes Call to the warning track. He's at the wall, he leaps, and it's gone. Two run homer for Nolan Jones makes it 4 nothing. Rockies. Here's the set and the pitch. Fastball line to center, that's going to be a base hit. This will score one run. Third base coach Warren Chaper with a stop sign up. As Gritchett comes in to score, they stop Jones at third, Tolly at a second. And Alan Trejo with a four-hit game gets his first RBI of the night and 16th of the year. It's now the Rockies 10 of the Nationals 4 with two runs home in the inning. And welcome to Nat Chat for Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, along with the returning MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We Later in the show, we'll solve the mystery of where Mark has been, but there is no mystery with what happened with the Nats on Monday night. They got ripped by the worst team in the National League, a 10-6 loss to the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series. That's now 41-59, and a mere one game ahead of the Rockies, who are 40 and 60. So much went well for the Nats over the weekend. Their three-game sweep at the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park. A terrific series for the Nats. Mark, two few things went well for the Nats on Monday night. Now, I have to be honest, I was in a cornfield in Iowa this weekend, so I did not get to watch anything that took place on South Capitol Street. I'm told, though, that the Nationals dominated the Giants and won three straight games. Is this correct? That did happen, and I actually heard a voice during the series that said, if you build it, they will come. I wasn't sure what that was talking about, but it's starting to make sense here. Okay, so it's coming together. All I can say is the last time I saw this team play in person was at Wrigley Field when they looked awful. Things completely fell apart on them in that series, and now the next time I see them, they played just an awful game. I mean, name the mistake they made it in this game against the Rockies. So I'll just take everyone's word for it that they played such great baseball over the weekend. I didn't see any of it. All I've seen now before the weekend and after the weekend is some ugly baseball. And that's unfortunate. I mean, they were riding high based on everything that I heard about that weekend. And to see them, it's not that they lost the game, but the way they played, they played an 
ugly, ugly game in all facets. And I think that more than anything is the disappointment here. Yeah, I think the Nats who played over the weekend retreated back into the cornfield with Shoeless Joe. So I think that's probably what ended up happening with that team because the discrepancy really is jarring. And I guess it's not that surprising. I mean, this is kind of how it is with bad teams. Like the bad teams can do well occasionally and, you know, even against good teams. And then you get a series against a fellow bad team and it's like a reality check and it's a big bucket of cold water. And, you know, who knows? Maybe the Nats end up doing well the rest of this series. But this was rough. I mean, if the Nats over the weekend played up to the level of the Giants, the Nats on Monday night played down to the level of the Rockies. The Rockies are hideous. I mean, let's make no mistake about this. But the Nats on Monday night came across that way as well. You know, one of the things about the sweep of the Giants was how well the Nats pitched in that series. Starting pitching, relief pitching, it all was good. It On Monday night, all was bad. The starting pitching was bad. The relief pitching was bad. So Patrick Corbin was the Nats starting pitcher on Monday night. He began his outing by tossing three scoreless innings. You thought, hey, maybe possibly the good times are going to continue, but things then fell apart. Corbin ultimately allowed six runs, five earned in six into third innings. He did his typical Patrick Corbin thing of giving up a lot of hits. He gave up 10 hits, a home run, a double, and eight singles. He issued two walks. He had five strikeouts. He threw 93 pitches, 55 strikes versus 38 balls. I feel like this is becoming a pattern with Corbin where he can actually be pretty good, maybe even really good over the initial innings. And then once you get into the, you know, fifth inning, sixth inning, you know, in this case, it was the fourth inning. But, you know, you start facing a lineup for a second and third time, things start to unravel. And what for a while looked like a pretty good outing ends up being a rather ugly outing. I mean, that final line, six runs, five earned, six and a third, not good. No, and this is why a lot of people over the last few years have been suggesting that maybe he would be successful as a reliever because facing a lineup one time, you pitch a couple of innings, he seems to ha- have the potential for success. But you're right, when he has to face them multiple times, we often see this happening. And, you know, he gave up the 10 hits, like you said. I looked this one up. It felt like this has been happening a lot. And it, of course, it has. This is the 14th time since 2020, that Patrick Corbin has given up 10 or more hits in a start. No other pitcher in the major leagues has had that happen to them more than five times since 2020. Hit 14 for him, no more than five for anyone else. And that tells you so much right there, of course. Now, other pitchers who give up that many hits, chances are they aren't given the opportunity to keep starting every fifth day for four years. And we understand why that's the case here because of the contract. But I keep coming back to this thing with him. And, you know, we've noted this over the years, but I feel like it really stands out. When he is not getting swings and misses, when he doesn't get strikeouts, he's relying on contact to get outs. And it just isn't a great way to go about it. Sometimes it works, but I feel like if you go look at the handful of really good starts he's had this year or the last few years, they usually include like seven, eight, even nine strikeouts. That's not the norm for him anymore. He is a pitch-to-contact guy. And he talked about, well, you know, I thought there was some weak contact and some balls slipped through. And maybe that's true, although I count six balls that were hit over 100 miles an hour off him. But regardless, when you give up contact, you're tempting fate. I don't care how good your defense is behind you, and we know the Nats' defense has not been great behind him. That's a really tough way to go about it and be successful in the big leagues, relying on weak contact. And that's who he is. This is the pitcher he is now where that's his best hope. And more often than not, it's not going to work. 
No, and it's part of why you know we do get concerned sometimes with Josiah Gray because he tries to do the pitch to contact thing, and I just think it's so hard for that to be a sustainable formula for long term success. Like, can you maybe have a good month doing things that way? Sure, a good season doing things that way, maybe. But you know, especially when you're a guy like Corbin, who pretty clearly is a fading pitcher, a declining pitcher. It's not going to go so well. And, you know, you look at Corbin now for all of the talk of him being better this season, and he has been better this season as compared to the last two seasons, which were horrendous. You know, his ERA now is over five for this season. 21 starts, he has an ERA of 5-0-1. So like we always say with him, it's all relative, man. Okay, like, is he better than last season? Yeah. Is his ERA over six? No. But his ERA is back to being over five, you know? Ain't nobody going to be throwing a parade over that. And, you know, whatever chance there was of maybe possibly the Nats trading him come the deadline now a week from today here, Tuesday, August 1st. I mean, you know, <laughs> good luck with that of what we saw on Tuesday night. So, you know, I don't want to bombard everyone with every little thing that happened in this outing from Corbin. I mean, the big blow was the big homer by Nolan Jones, a two-out, two-run, first-pitch home run by Nolan Jones to center field for a 4 nothing Rockies lead, 420 feet for StatCast. That came in the top of the six. There was some sketchy defense in this game uh, with Patrick Corbin pitching, or at least regarding runs that were charged to Patrick Corbin. Top of the fourth, he allowed two runs, gave up a one-out opposite field single by Randall Gritchick to right center. Two runs scored on the play as uh, Alex Call bobbled the ball for a fielding error. Boy, did Alex Call have an eventful night in the field. Two outfield assists, a fielding error, a terrific diving catch. Like, every time you looked up, something was happening with Alex Call in the field. Although, you know what? We talk about some of the defense failing, Corbin. Let's also say this. In that two-run fourth, one-out first pitch single by Nolan Jones to center field. We then had Alex Cole with an outfield assist and throwing out Gritchick at home. This is trouble. It's going to get down for a base hit. Call cuts it off in the alley, bobbles it, headed home is Profar. Rounding third, coming home, Tovar. Abrams has to throw in the middle. We'll hold on to it as Tovar slides in with a second run. And you also had a Lane Thomas outfield assist in the Rockies' two-run six. Corbin gave up a one-out opposite field single by Randall Gritchick through the right side of the infield. But Lane Thomas, another outfield assist. He threw out Ezekiel Tovar at home. Tovar initially was called safe. Davey Martinez successfully challenged the play, which included a really good tag by Kbert Ruiz. So there was a lot happening defensively in this game, but there certainly were some bad moments to go with the good moments. Yeah. So there were mistakes. The call bobble on the play just before he then threw out the runner at the plate was costly to them. There was a a grounder up the middle that kind of deflected off of Corbin and went through the middle infield. And it's one of those where if he doesn't touch it, maybe C.J. Abrams actually in position to field the ball and start a double play. So, you know, yeah, some little things like that, some bad breaks. But here's the thing. After the Lane Thomas throw to the plate that you just alluded to, literally the next pitch is the two-run homer. So Thomas offers a lifeline to his pitcher. Hey, get one more out. We're out of this inning. And it's still at that point going to be, what, a 2 nothing game. And instead, on the very next pitch, he gives up just a no doubt towering home run to straightaway center field. And, and that's the Patrick Corbin conundrum. It's like he actually gets the help he needs from behind him, and then he can't finish the job himself. And I'll also be honest, I was surprised that he came back out for the seventh inning. Now, I know the pitch count was low. It was only 82 after the sixth, but he's given up four runs now. He's going to be facing the lineup, the bottom of the lineup for the third time, and then potentially the top of the lineup a fourth time. I was kind of surprised by that. I thought, hey, you got six innings out of him. It's four nothing. Take your chances with the bullpen and see what happens now. And instead, he ended up giving up two more runs in the seventh. 
The Nats came into Monday 28th out of 30 major league teams in defensive runs saved for the season, minus 30 defensive runs saved on the year. We talk so much about the Nats' prospects and you know how they are profiling offensively in terms of the position-playing prospects. And obviously, right now, the bulk of the promising position-playing prospects are outfielders, although you do have third baseman Brady House in the mix. Do you know what these prospects, what the thinking is on them defensively? Like, if slash when the Nats get good again and these guys are raking at the major league level... Are the Nats going to be better defensively, or is the defense going to continue to be, uh, shall we say, a work in progress? I am very interested to see that aspect of it. Now, some of these guys have very good defensive reputations. Dylan Cruz, college center fielder on the best team and won like the equivalent of the college gold glove award, I think, in center field. His coach was talking him up about that over the weekend when he was introduced here at Nats Park. And the belief is he can stick as a center fielder, although maybe he won't because James Wood might be better than him. The belief is that all these guys can play center field, and we'll see who actually turns out to be the one to play that and who moves to the corners. Wood is a big guy, of course. I'm really interested to see him in person as he glides around an outfield and how that works, especially as his body starts to fill out. Brady House, of course, playing third base for the first time this year after being a shortstop, and there was always a a thought that he may be better off there, a bigger-bodied guy. Mike Rizzo said that part of the reason for promoting him when they did to double A was that he has, in their mind, really come a long way and mastered the position defensively. That was one of their bigger concerns coming into the year, and they feel really good about how he's done there. So they can have good reputations, but we need to see it at the big league level. It's a big difference once you finally get up here and are dealing with everything that goes with that. But I think ultimately, good defensive teams, it's up the middle is what you're talking for the most part about. Shortstop, second base. You know, C.J. Abrams, we haven't talked about his defense a whole lot lately. And I think it's a good thing. Two errors in his last 28 games. So that's a good sign for him. Now, is he perfect? No. Still makes some mistakes. But I think there's been improvement there over what we saw earlier in the year. Luis Garcia, maybe not as much. We were really talking him up early in the year about how much better he was at second base than he was at shortstop. And yes, he is better at second base. But I still feel like there's a good number of balls he's not getting to that you'd like a big league second baseman to get to. And Cabert Ruiz, you know, we know the analytics are not kind to him. It's mostly pitch framing. The throwing hasn't been great, but is that his fault or the pitcher's fault? But like you said, a couple of good tags at the plate in this game. And that's an underrated kind of important thing. We've seen Nats catchers over the years not be great at that sort of thing. So if that's actually a skill that he's got, that's a nice sign. So I am interested to see the young guys, how they play defensively. But I think ultimately I'm more interested in Abrams, and if Garcia is the long-term answer at second base, and then Ruiz behind the plate. We did see the Nats defense get better as last season went on, especially post the trade deadline. I don't know if there's reason to think that that will be happening this year. I mean, Jamer Candelario is having a good defensive season. If you're about to trade him, that would seem to be a uh, not a boost to your defense. But, you know, I did think that this team defensively had a chance to be a lot better this season. You know, the offense, I don't think anyone ever had great confidence in. The pitching, you were like, who the heck knows? The defense, it felt like, could take a big step forward this year. And unfortunately, just from a team aspect, that has not happened. So Patrick Corbin on Monday night got roughed up. And then it was the turn of the Nats bullpen to get roughed up. Now, again, you go back to the three-game sweep of the Giants. The Nats bullpen was good in that series. But uh, reality was back to being in effect 
on Monday night. Two Nats relievers officially allowed four runs in two and two-thirds innings. Uh, The two relievers were Rico Garcia and Corey Abbott. Garcia officially allowed two runs in one inning. He, in this outing, faced seven batters but got just three outs. Garcia in the Rockies' two-run seventh Faced four batters, got two outs. He, on the very first pitch he threw, induced a flyout by Jerickson Profar on that terrific catch by Alex Call, a diving forward backhanded catch by Call. But Garcia then issued a two-out wild pitch, gave up a two-out infield single, and issued a two-out walk. And the two-out infield single was by Ezekiel Tovar on a full-count grounder to third baseman Jamer Candelario, who got charged with a throwing error on a one-hop throw that uh, the first baseman, Dominic Smith, did not catch. And a run scored on the play to give the Rockies a 6-0 lead. And then came the Corey Abbott experience. Abbott officially allowed two runs in one and two-thirds innings. He faced 10 batters, got just five outs. He gave up. Take a listen to this. Three singles and issued two walks, a hit by pitch, a wild pitch, and a balk. You know, for a batter, we have what's called hitting for the cycle, right? When you homer, triple, double, and single. What's it called when you as a pitcher give up a hit, a walk, a hit by pitch, a wild pitch, and a balk? All five of those things. If there isn't a word for that, if there isn't a name for that, I feel like we have to come up with something. Maybe we call it the Corey Abbott. Whatever we call it, he did it on Monday night. I'm calling it Yahtzee. That's the best I can come up with for it. That was an ugly, ugly appearance by Corey Abbott. And let's talk about the balk because this was not the first time we've seen this this year by the Nationals. Runners on first and second, and he makes a pickoff attempt to first base for the trailing runner, only to realize that Dom Smith, the first baseman, is not holding him on. And so he doesn't make the throw, and you're called for a balk because, of course, you're not allowed to do that. And last time it was this case. And again, it was this case this year with the new pitch comp system. The catcher can call for a pickoff. And in this case, it calls pickoff first base. That's what Corey Abbott hears in his ear. That's what Dom Smith at first base hears because he's got one of these as well. Now, if you've got two runners on base, you're never going to pick off to first base as a pitcher. What that means is back pick at first base. Throw the pitch and then Dom, get over to first base because the catcher is going to throw it over there and try to catch him by surprise. It's a play the Nationals have executed very well over the last few seasons. And Corey Abbott on the mound, for some reason, thinks that actually means he should pick off to first base, even though nobody is holding the runner on. I'm sorry, this can't happen. This can't, It should never happen at all, let alone to happen twice this season to this team That's embarrassing. That is bad baseball. There is no excuse for making those kind of mistakes. That was pretty awful. And I just have to say, we've seen bad relief outings by Nats relievers this season. But something like what Abbott did on Monday night, it is like draining as a fan. It's one thing when a starting pitcher struggles, especially if it's a young starting pitcher, you feel like, all right, well, this is bad. But, you know, he's young, he's growing. Hopefully he learns from this. When you see someone like a Corey Abbott engage in one of these tedious, you know, high pitch outings. There's ugliness to it. He's putting guys on base. He's working slowly. He's throwing a lot of pitches. That like sucks the life out of you as a fan. It is so hard to watch. And it just, it so feels like it's pointless. Like it's not taking you anywhere. At least when a Mackenzie Gore struggles to say, well, maybe this is just part of his learning curve, his growth. With this, you're like, Corey Abbott's not going to be here 
you know, certainly two years from now, a year from now, maybe, you know, a day from now with the way things are going with him. And you're just like, we all have to sort of sit and endure this, you know, as Nats fans slash observers. And that just is what is always so rough about these bad bullpen outings. The Nats now for this season have a relief pitching ERA of 550. I mean, let that sink in. A bullpen ERA of 550. That is atrocious, as all of you listening know. And, you know, what happened on Monday night, of course, helps to contribute to that. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Summer is here. The heat, the humidity, forcing your air conditioning unit into overdrive, leading to energy bills that are higher than James Wood's potential. <laughs> the solution, new windows from my friends at Window Nation, which is offering a great deal. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years plus Two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Protect your home and increase the value of your home with great new windows from Window Nation, which does windows right. You know, the average installer from Window Nation has over 16 years of experience with over 20 thousand windows installed. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Hey, Nats Chat. Need last-minute tickets to this Nats homestand? Check out the Game Time app. Friday night was date night at the ballpark for the wife and I, and it came through perfectly for last-minute tickets. Avoid the lines at the ticket window with the Game Time app. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's a swing and a long drive by Jamer Candelario. Deep to right toward the corner. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. 
First pitch fastball from Gavin Hollowell. Bang! Zoom goes Jamer Candelario with his 16th home run of the year. It is a three-run shot. Landing in the second deck over the bullpen. RBIs 48, 49, and 50 for Jamer Candelario. And it's now the Rockies 8 of the Nationals 4. The Nats in this game on Monday night scored six runs on seven hits, worked three walks, went three for 12 with runners in scoring position. We presumably are seeing the final games for Jamer Candelario as a Nat with, again, the trade deadline coming up now a week from today, Tuesday, August 1st. Candelario on Monday night as the Nats starting third baseman and number three batter, two for four with a three-run homer and a double. He did get charged with that throwing error. But uh, Candelario in an Nats one-run seventh, a leadoff double to center field. And he in an Nats three-run eighth, a two-out first pitch, three-run homer to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 8-4. This guy continues to produce. He really is having a terrific season, especially considering, you know, the contract to which the Nats signed him this past offseason, right? One year, $5 million. There's basically no chance they keep him beyond the deadline. Is there like, is there any reason to think he's not going to be traded come this coming Tuesday? I suppose if the best offer that's out there just is so weak <laughs> that Mike Rizzo says, this isn't worth doing. Let's hang on to the guy. Maybe he'll help us win a few more games by the end of the year. And maybe we actually want to consider re-signing him this winter. I suppose that is a scenario. I think it's very small. It's a 5% chance, something like that. I think he will make the move because I think he is going to get a halfway decent offer for him. But I do think sometimes we overestimate what you're going to get for a rental player for two months, especially a guy who is not you know, star power, big name guy. Now, we all who've been watching him know he's been very good for them this year, maybe the best third baseman in the National League, top to bottom. But do other teams see that? Are there enough other teams that really need a third baseman? And are they willing to offer up what Mike Rizzo is going to want in return? My guess is that they he, they will get something for him that is of value and that it's worth doing. But remember last year, we just assumed that Nelson Cruz would get moved, that some other guys, you know, they'd get an offer at least on some other guys. And they didn't in the end or whatever offers they got were not nearly enough to make the move. So I don't ever want to just assume that it's going to happen. But right now with a week to go, if there's one guy on the team that I'm pretty confident is not going to still be on the team a week from now, it's Jamer Candelaro. And I think if I had to set an over-under on how many trades they make, I'm going under 1.5. I think Jamer is probably the only trade they make. It's possible they do one or two others, but I think that's the only one that I feel like actually better than a 50-50 shot of happening. Yeah, I mean, I think if they want to, they could trade Lane Thomas. I think it's a question of do they want to and should they want to? And, you know, we certainly have talked about that. I also find this to be something to think about. And I brought this up on the last installment of the show. You know, we have seen Mike Rizzo do the thing of instead of trading one guy at a time, you package guys and you trade them together in order to get more. I mean, the ultimate example of that would be Juan Soto and Josh Bell. Do you think we might see that with Candelario to where maybe the Nats only make the one trade but they pooled together, you know, Candelario and, I don't know, maybe Kyle Finnegan or, you know, maybe Lane Thomas. I mean, maybe they do end up trading him and they package, say, Thomas and Candelario in order to get potentially a top 100 prospect. Do you think that that's a possibility? Yeah, I do. If you can find the right team, that they have those specific needs that they want both players. But no, you're right. I mean, even they did that with Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. The feeling all along, whether we believe him or not, but the feeling was that 
Max Scherzer alone was not going to get them Caber Ruiz or Josiah Gray. You had to throw in Trey Turner with his extra year of control to make that happen. So, you know, Jamer Candelario is not Max Scherzer. So if you really want to get something of real value in return for him, you may have to include somebody else in that deal. Again, we'll see. I think that one really boils down to, is there a team that has multiple needs that that fit what the Nationals have to offer? And ultimately, if you're Mike Rizzo, do you want to move those other guys who are under control beyond this year and could be a part of a team that's ready to win, say, by 2025? I think that's the more fascinating dilemma to all this. I don't think it's a, a huge decision with Candelario. I think the real decisions are guys like Finnegan and Thomas who are in that gray area of, are they part of the plan or are they not part of the plan? And my hunch there is that Rizzo will take phone calls. I don't think he's going to shop those guys around, but he will take calls. And if he gets, if, if he finds another GM who values those two guys as much as he values them, then he's willing to make the move. But if other teams don't value Lane Thomas and Kyle Finnegan as much as Mike Rizzo does, he's not going to feel like he needs to make a move. And so he'll, he'll uh, hang on to them. Also of note for the Nats offensively on Monday night, two guys who are having really good Julys continued to do well, talking about C.J. Abrams and K. Bert Ruiz. Uh, Abrams on Monday night as your Nats starting shortstop and number one batter, one for four with a double and a walk. He in the bottom of the first had a leadoff first pitch double off the right field warning track. And K. Bert Ruiz, uh, he on Monday night as an Nats starting catcher, a number five batter, two for four with an RBI single and an infield single. Uh, K. Bert in the Nats, one run seventh, an RBI single through the left side of the infield off a former Nat, Brad Hand, that cut the Nats deficit to 6-1. C.J. Abrams now for this month of July has an OPS of 9.75. You go back to what he did in June. He, in the month of June, had a slash line of 216, 247, 338. I think the difference between the Abrams of June and the Abrams of July is one of the greatest differences that we have encountered, certainly since we started doing this podcast in terms of Nationals players. And honestly, I mean, this would take a lot of research, but since the franchise came to D.C., how many guys have ever had a one-month turnaround like this. And, you know, with Abrams, it's not just, well, he had a down month in June. Like, that's what he was doing. Like, that's where he was as a batter, you know, slashing to the tune of 216, 247, 338. I mean, he came into July on the season with a slash line of 230, 276, 385. He really was a very underwhelming offensive player. And now, all of a sudden in July, the guy is hitting like an MVP candidate. I can't get over this. I mean, he's hitting for power. He's routinely producing extra base hits now. Previously, it was like once in a blue moon that this guy was getting extra base hits. This is so encouraging for so many reasons, but it also is so shocking to see how like on a dime this has happened, how he has gone from being such a bad hitter to now such a good hitter. The only comparable guys I can really think of, they were both in 2021, was Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell. Remember, they were pretty awful in April, really the first like six weeks of the season. And then they both just took off. And of course, Schwarber had the, the memorable June before he got hurt. And Bell really was good until he was traded you know, more than a year later. But the difference there is you're talking about two guys who had track records. And they had been successful big league hitters in the past. They just got off to slow starts in the season. C.J. Abrams doesn't have that track record, obviously. We liked what we saw, you know, maybe the last two weeks or so of last season, but that was a very small sample. And when he got off to the slow start 
this year, you kind of started worrying, well, does he really have this in him or not? So yeah, it is a dramatic turnaround for him. And I'm glad you mentioned from July 1st, this isn't just about since he took over the leadoff job. He was already doing this prior to that point. It's among the reasons that Davey Martinez made the move when he did. He initially thought, well, I'll wait till after the All-Star break. But he got to that final weekend and said, you know what? He's been hitting really well here for a while. Let's go ahead and make the move now. And we've seen how good he's been ever since. That's a month's worth of really good production from him as far as hitting, hitting for power, getting on base, stealing bases. He's 13 for 13 over the last month. And I mentioned earlier, only two errors in the field. We are seeing a complete player right now. You just hope you can continue to see that over the rest of the season and that this isn't just one great month out of nowhere and that he reverts back to the guy he was before that. Yeah, but if he now is off and running as the star that, you know, the Nats certainly traded for him to be, I mean, this is so clearly the breakout month and so clearly the turnaround. It just, you know, a lot of times with great players, it kind of happens gradually and then you sort of wake up one day and you say to yourself, yeah, you know what? This guy's doing well. With Abrams, it's like, you know, it was pure darkness and then like, you know, 15 light switches got flipped and all of a sudden, I mean, you see the light with this guy. He, he has been remarkable in this month. All right. We don't want to leave people hanging. There were a lot of rumors over the weekend. Where was Mark Zuckerman? I mean, all over Twitter, all over Reddit, people were talking, people were saying, where is he? What's going on? So we want to shut down the innuendo. We want to shut down the speculation and hear it from the source. Where was Mark Zuckerman over the weekend? Well, I was not creating a new social media site. I was not rebranding an existing social media site either. I was on vacation with my family. Yes, I'm allotted a few days of that during the season. Timing of this worked out really well. The Nats were, of course, in Chicago playing the Cubs, and I invited the whole family. When I say the whole family, I'm talking my wife, my son, my brother, my father, and my father-in-law. None of them had ever been to Wrigley Field before. They all came and they joined me and watched the last game of that Nats series at Wrigley Field and loved that experience getting to see that old ballpark. And then Nats left town reeling from those couple of losses, and I just assumed that was the way they were going to play all weekend. And we stayed in Chicago and did a bunch of stuff in the city. Again, most of them had never really experienced much of any of that. So we had a lot of fun doing that. We went back to Northwestern. My brother and I both graduated from there. It was the first time we'd been back in a while. We got to hang our heads in shame as we saw all the uh, issues going on with their athletic department there. But that was nice. But really, the highlight of the trip, and this is the thing that just kind of all came together perfectly. We, on our last day of the trip, drove to Dyersville, Iowa, and went to the Field of Dreams. And this is something that we'd all, you know, maybe thought about doing at some point along the way, but it was this thought of like, well, that's a long way out there. What reason would we ever have to be there to go do that? And it was like the stars aligned. This was perfect. We were all going to be there in Chicago, you know, three generations of family able to do this. So we made the drive. It's about three hours on some back roads from Chicago to Dyersville. We got there. We took a tour of the farmhouse, which they've restored to look just like it was in the movie. The tour guide did a great job of telling us all about the history of it. And that, and then we went out and like so many people do, we had a catch. So I had got to have a catch with my father 
and my son and my brother and my wife got to have a catch with her dad in the outfield at the Field of Dreams. And I think if we had gone on a random day, we might have been one of the only people there. We happened to go on you know, a Saturday in the middle of July, which you would guess is more popular. But even beyond that, this was a special Saturday there. They only do this a few times a year. They have the ghost players, the guys dressed up in the old White Sox uniforms that come out of the corn. And some of these guys have been doing it for 34 years since the movie came out. A couple of them were extras in the movie. And they perform every once in a while. They come out and they do a whole thing. And it's a great show. It's about an hour long. They bring kids out from the audience. It's sort of like a little bit of a Harlem Globetrotters kind of thing. They have fun with it. They're in the field. They let the kids hit the ball. And then they you know, run into each other and have different gags and things. And their running joke is that in the 34 years they've done this, no kid has ever made an out. <laughs> Everybody somehow finds a way to get on base there. So there are about 500 people watching this with us. And it was a good crowd. And we walk out there before that show started, and there's just a pickup game going on. And my son steps in, just takes over at third base. I went into left field for a little bit, and it was such a just nice experience from people from all over the place just showing up at this shrine to baseball and enjoying it. And listen, I know that Field of Dreams, the movie, is for some people, they love it. Some people can't stand it. Some people don't get it. That's fine. I'm not here to tell anybody who doesn't like the movie that you should like it. It either hits you or it doesn't. And that's fine. I've always loved it since the first time I saw it. My family loves it. It was a really special thing for us to be able to do that, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trip. And, you know, I'm sorry that it, as a result, I missed the Nats' best weekend in two years of play. But uh, it was a very cool thing for me to get to do that with my family and experience my weekend in Iowa. Well, MLB doing a game there, I thought was so smart. And that's the kind of thing I would love for MLB to do more of, you know, come up with theme games like that. I think it's different. It breaks up the monotony of the season. And especially in a setting like that, obviously you wouldn't want to play 81 home games there, but to do something like that once in a while, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's tremendous. The Field of Dreams movie, I mean, it is something, right? So it came out in 1989. It was a success when it came out. I remember watching it years ago as a kid. But I think for a lot of people, it really has stood the test of time to where if you said that's the number one baseball movie of all time, I don't think you get laughed out of the room. Like, it's all subjective, of course, right? Like you were just saying. But I think you very much could make that argument. And it's a funny deal, right? Because you have the Black Sox and you have Shoeless Joe and these guys, you know, exited the sport in shame. But in so many ways, especially Shoeless Joe, they have been immortalized by this movie, right? How many people knew about the Black Sox, knew about Shoeless Joe before Field of Dreams? And that movie, indirectly or otherwise, I think reintroduced so many people to that story, probably smartened people up to that story. I bet a lot of people had never even heard of that story. And, you know, that movie, I mean, here we are now, what, 34 years later, it's still a really big deal. And, you know, so much so that you can have a venue like the one you were at and, you know, people will seek it out and drive hours out of the way to go view that. You know, it's a testament to that movie and the impact that it had on people. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest what this is. This is a movie filming site, <laughs> you know, for the first 30 years, nothing actually happened there. There was no major league game. It was a guy who owned the farm, they kept the field and maintained it. And it's funny, I asked the tour guide, like, how long after the movie came out before people started just showing up there? She said it was the day after the movie debuted. The first person showed up and all of a sudden they realized like, whoa, this actually is going to have some impact. And all these years later, they said 
I think up to like two to 300,000 visitors a year. And let's be clear, Dyersville, Iowa is a small town. It's a farming town. It's not close to any major hub. It's really out there. There's no reason to go there, with all due respect to the residents of Dyersville. There's no real reason to go there unless you're going for this specific thing and it's turned into a whole industry. And what I also was impressed with being there was seeing all the volunteers, the people who work there, they're locals. And a lot of the people who were in that movie were locals. We, we heard a lot of the stories about them, the, the extras on the field, the extras in the, the school PTA meeting from that famous scene. And it's really interesting to hear how many people there have embraced that as their you know notoriety, the thing that they've become famous for. And all these years later, you still have people who embrace it. You would think at some point they just get sick of it and like, oh, give us our town back. We don't want to have people inundating us. And no, instead, especially when the major league games came there the last few years, there were tons of local volunteers and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. There's a lot of work going on there right now that major league field that they used, they're turning into more of a permanent facility. Frank Thomas actually bought the land. He and a company that he runs own all that. They're trying to make it into more of a permanent facility where you can have games all the time and a whole youth complex kind of on the other side of the ridge. You can't see from the field itself, but on the other side of the corn, they're going to have four youth fields and have regular consistent tournaments and activities there. They've really turned this into a whole industry. And while you could look at that and say, oh, that's a bad thing to like turn this great pastoral venue into a commercial enterprise, they've really gone out of their way to try to make sure they maintain the original intent of it, which was if you build it, he will come, that you just have this great shrine. And then off in the distance that you can't see, they're also going to provide opportunities for more activities. So it really was a cool thing. We were debating, is this worth it driving all the way out there for this just to hang around for a little bit? At the end of the day, we all said, absolutely, it was worth it. We were there for about four hours start to finish. It was a wonderful experience. To anyone else who has been there, we'd love to hear about your experience. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us online as well via our website, NatsChatPodcast.com, at which you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the music of the Nats Chat Podcast. Check out his site, Tim Newmark. Next up for the Nats is game two of this series against the Rockies, Tuesday night at 7.05. Trevor Williams will be the Nats' starting pitcher. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Can I ask you something? Is, Is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? Yeah. Because one, it was heaven. <laughs>